Well, it's good to welcome you once again as we uh, focus in on our Wednesday night Bible study in Psalm 78. We'll be looking down at verse 58 this morning, but you'll notice um, that we're in a different place. And I said this morning because I'm recording it in the morning, so uh, excuse me on that. But uh, you'll notice we're here in the children's church room, and that's appropriate because Psalm 78 is talking to us about what we are supposed to tell the children what Asaph was concerned about way, way back centuries and centuries ago about the children that were growing up as Jewish children as to what they knew and what they didn't know about their history and about the God that had uh, led them out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. And we've seen that um, as we look back and examine those previous generations, their unfaithfulness in light of God's faithfulness to them. But there came a point to where God just simply said, enough. And I'm afraid that if we are going by the God that sometimes we learn from only singing songs or only going to Sunday school, especially as a child, what, what is it that we really learn about God? Now, I'll just tell you a story. I was in a lot of churches growing up as a um, you all know if you're a member of Graceway, my dad was in the military, and so we were stationed in a lot of different places. That means a lot of different schools, but it also means a lot of different churches and a lot of different Sunday school teachers, a lot of different preachers, a lot of different congregations. But one thing was common and is that when we were little kids, when we were uh, preschool and elementary age, there was not just a whole lot that we really learned about God. I don't remember anybody talking about a God of wrath, for example. It was always a God of love. It was always uh, a God who created everything. And those things are true. We never want to de-emphasize those things. But I think back when I was growing up, being in church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, being in Sunday school, being in all of the other programs, what did I really know when I got out of it? Not much. I knew that we are helpers, I knew that God made the world, and I knew that God is love, and I probably knew John 3.16. But it's interesting that uh, some people never graduate past that, do they? They never really uh, understand that, yes, God is a God of love, yes, God is a God of mercy, yes, God is a God who forgives, but they never plug everything theologically together to see that God is also a God who is angry at sin. And the Bible also says in the Psalms, you might want to look this up if you don't believe me in a concordance, that God is angry with sinners every day. And when you think about the whole concept of justice, when you think about the concept of an unchanging God and his hatred towards sin, then it makes more sense when you think about Jesus coming to earth to die on the cross in our place because he bore the death and the punishment and the wrath of God that we could never, ever bear. And so um, when the Bible makes statements like um, in Psalm, I believe it's 103, let me catch up here, 103 verse 6, it says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. Now listen to this. The Lord is merciful. We would certainly affirm that because it's in the Bible. And gracious, praise God for that. But notice it says, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So while we look at that verse and it tells us about the Lord being slow to anger, it does mention that he has anger. And when it says that he will not uh, keep his anger going toward his people forever, and yet there is the element we have to look at that God does express anger toward even his own people. And we see that abundantly in the Old Testament. So every time you sin, and every time they would sin, it was basically saying, I don't believe that. It was basically saying, I don't care about that. Let God do whatever he wants to do. Or maybe we're actually saying, I don't believe that it matters, that God is going to do anything. And think about what that means when you say that about the gospel. Is the gospel really necessary and relevant if God is not angry towards sin? If the punishment for sin is not actually poured out upon Jesus Christ? I mean, why would he bother coming then? And why would it even matter if God just was an old grandfatherly, kindly type person who didn't really care? Then why would he put his son through all of that? All of this is very important for us to see the whole picture and the big picture, which is exactly what Israel didn't see. Now that's what we have to understand, and that's Asaph's point. The children are growing up with a distorted view of God, and they're walking into a trap. The enemy is going to lead them astray and lead them into a place where not only do the demons of hell entrap them, but the anger of God is going to work against them too. And this happened over and over and over and over. And that's relevant to us because Paul told us these things are written as a warning to us so that we don't become like them. And that's Asaph's point in writing this. Please, don't become like previous generations. Teach your children and teach them properly and live properly in front of them so that they can learn and grow and uh, do it properly and in a well-balanced way. So let's look at uh, Psalm 78 and we'll begin reading in verse 58. And it says, For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. So both of those things, high places, carved images, those are referring to um, idolatry, okay? Even in the promised land, even after they got into the land, conquered the land, had their lands assigned to them, they still reverted to um, um, image worshiping and idolatry just like they did in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, remember? Verse 59, now when God heard this, he was furious, note that word, furious, and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among them, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. That's drastic when God will allow his glory to be in the enemy's hand. There's a purpose for him doing that. And then it says, he also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire, and, and that's a reference to war, consumed their young men, and as a result, their maidens were not given in marriage because the young men were killed in battle, and even their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation for them. Uh, this is a kind of a, 
a dark and kind of a chilling story to think about what God would do with his own people because of their sin, what he would allow to happen because of their sin. Now we look at that and sometimes we go, well, how could a loving God do something like that? But think about this as well. Why is it that when we think about paying consequences for something, we will do almost anything we can and everything we can to avoid offending or stirring up the anger of another person and yet never give thought to the fact that we might be offending God. What if, as Corey Ten Boom said, if we were half as afraid of offending God as we are of offending man, our lives would be drastically changed. But we never take into consideration the God who saved us, the God who created us, the God who gives us air to breathe and food to eat, the God who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And then we just kind of act as though, okay, thank you for doing all of that. Now I can do anything I want. And we kind of flaunt that in front of God. Well, these uh, verses are written to remind us that there's the other side of God that we don't talk about just a whole lot. Let's think about these points. The first one would be that uh, just because God is slow to anger does not mean that there is no anger towards sin. I can remember sitting in church when I was a young teenager and we had a youth revival. Some of you are old enough to remember those. And the guy came in and uh, preaching. He was a college student and I don't know how much he knew or how much he didn't know because I really don't know the guy. But I remember him telling us his sermon was entitled, Ten Things God Cannot Do. And one of the points in there was, God is love and God cannot hate. And I imagine my surprise when later on I found out that the Bible does talk about God having hatred, a perfect hatred, and how he hates and how he abhors and how sin is an abomination to him. There's an anger toward God because of his holy hatred towards sin. When you think about that, understand that the God, this God who is so kind, so generous, so merciful. I mean, after all, he had taken these people out of Egypt. They had no hope against Pharaoh whatsoever, but God delivered them. There was no way that they should have escaped the armies of Pharaoh when they were encamped by the Red Sea, but God miraculously delivered them. There's no way that they should have survived in the wilderness, but God miraculously fed them and gave them water. He protected them all the way through. And then when they get to the banks of the Jordan at Kadesh Barnea, what is it that they say? Oh, the cities are too big. The people are too tall. There's no way we could ever conquer them. What a slap in the face toward the God who had brought them all the way out of Egypt. Then when they get into the land 40 years later with a new generation, what do they do? Well, Asaph is telling us the story that they constantly, constantly were rebelling against God. And God had given them this land and God had given them freedom. God had given them security, all of these kind of things. And what do they do? They don't worry about offending God. They do what they want to do. In the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when you're going to do what is right in your own eyes, guess who is going to be offended? It's going to be the God who gave you so much and has done so much for you. We need to think about that and we need to understand that and we need to know that God is still angry toward sin. 
He, after all, is an unchanging God. So don't think that because God is slow to anger that there is no anger towards sin at all. That seems to be what Israel, the mistake that they made, and they continually provoked him, continually worshipped idols, continually were in the high places. And high places is a biblical reference to the hills where they would go up and offer sacrifices to false gods. Okay, number two, the ten tribes, remember there were twelve tribes in Israel, and ten of them lost their opportunity because of sin. Now that's what it means in verse 59 when it says, When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. Greatly abhorred Israel. Remember, later we see this a little more graphically when the nation splits. There's a northern kingdom. It's called Israel, made up of ten tribes. The southern kingdom is made up of uh, it's called the nation of Judah, and it's made up predominantly of the tribe of Judah and also the little tribe of Benjamin. And uh, God constantly makes reference to those ten tribes as Israel. Now when it says he abhorred Israel, what it is saying is he rejected those ten tribes as being the tribe that would uh, be the tribe of worship and the tribe of the capital of Israel. In fact, um, in these days, the tabernacle, the temple hadn't been built yet. Remember, it's not built until David's son Solomon builds it. But they did have a tabernacle, a temporary place that was kind of like a, a temple tent, we might say. It was portable, a mobile temple, we might say. And uh, it was located in Shiloh. And what happened when God got tired of messing with all of them? It was no longer in Shiloh, but it was kept... Uh, in the tribe of Judah. And so Ephraim and the other tribes are rejected even though they had been the more prestigious tribes and they had been the tribes that kind of uh, took care of the worship and all of those type of things, the tabernacle. Now it's gone because they lost the opportunity. You know, I was trying to remember the Apostle Paul told us that he would discipline his own body lest having preached to others that he would become disqualified. You know, God will forgive your sins, but it also may be that He never gives you the opportunity to do again what you had done before your sin. You could become disqualified. Time could pass you by. The opportunity, the door of opportunity could be closed. And here it is where God states that He uh, sets the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle and the worship under the jurisdiction of Judah instead of being in Shiloh and that would never ever come back to those particular tribes. Even in the times of Jesus, they would go down to Jerusalem and that was in Judea. That's New Testament Judah. And so uh, that opportunity is completely gone and completely lost. I wonder how many times because we would rather sin, because we would rather do things our way, do we miss opportunities that later we realize, oh, I should have done this. God, give me another chance. And it may be that the Lord says, no, you're forgiven, but time has gone by. The opportunity for that and the door is closed. That's why we need to act today and we need to heed his voice today as the book of Hebrews says. Number three, notice that misplaced faith is exposed. What is it that Asaph has been telling us about the Jews, as they were in the wilderness and when they first came into the land, over and over and over, 
they would get into a bad situation, turn to the Lord, and you remember it says they flattered him with their mouth. It wasn't real. And so God finally gets to the place to where he says, enough. And their hypocrisy is exposed, and their empty words, their vain worship, their misplaced hope, all of that. Remember Jesus quoted Isaiah when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but in their heart they're far from me. And God always looks upon the heart, right? And so God will put in his people in a position where that misplaced faith is exposed. Now, is that done simply because he wants to humiliate us? Not on your life. It is actually done because he loves us and he wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. He wants us to know him and he wants us to be more blessable than we are right now. It's called sanctification. So what does he do? He exposes that, not because he needed to see it and not because we need to be humiliated, but because we need to see it so that we don't live a shallow and empty and hypocritical life. And so he makes reference here that he um, delivered his strength into captivity. What's that talking about? Well, there was a time when Saul was king of Israel, because this psalm is written way after that. Saul decided that he was going to go to battle and when he went to battle, he didn't really seek the Lord or anything. He didn't get the Lord's blessing on it. And he kept being defeated. And so his answer is not to turn to the Lord or seek the Lord, but go get the box that's in the tabernacle. What box am I talking about? The Ark of the Covenant. And Saul was being little better than an idolater because he superstitiously thought that if he could bring the box in, the Ark in, that that would force God to bless them. And they were constantly thinking that if we have the tabernacle, if we have the ark, nothing can happen to us no matter how evil we are because they were superstitious. God is not going to allow this to be captured. You know what happened? God allowed the ark to be captured. And God allowed the ark of the covenant that Moses had made that um, contained all of those wonderful things, remember, to be put in the temple of Dagon and the Philistines put him in there the box in there as if Yahweh God of Israel is on the same par with Dagon, the uh, God of the Philistines. God allowed his power, his strength into captivity. Now they couldn't have taken him and they couldn't have taken the ark unless God allowed it. And so God delivered it into their hands. And it says, uh, the last part of that verse, and his glory into the enemy's hand. Now, God was glorified because when the Philistines put the ark in there, remember there were about three occasions where the Philistines would come in and find the image of Dagon bowing before the ark or, you know, being broken up. And finally, the Philistines say, get that thing out of here. But this was all what God had done to show them, I don't live in a box. And you can't do your superstitious rituals uh, to try to think maybe that you're going to force my hand. And we kind of struggle with that today, don't we? There are some people who will do a quiet time every morning and they'll never miss. Not because they love God, but because they think that if they do their quiet time, nothing bad will happen to them in that day. There are some people who will give an offering to the Lord and they will even figure it up to 10% as their tithe. And that's supposed to keep my tires from going flat or my car from breaking down 
or something like that. And God wants to teach us not to just go through superstitious rituals to try to keep evil away. It's more than that. It's about doing the things that we ought to do simply because we love God and He is worthy of our praise and worship. That's where Israel completely missed it. And then fourthly, notice here that uh, it says that protection is removed. Protection is removed. Look at verse 62. He gave His people to the sword and was furious with His inheritance. What does it mean that He gave them to the sword? All of a sudden... There's a battle and there's a war. No, that's existed all the time. Israel always had enemies and they were the enemies of God. But God had protected them during these times. All God has to do is let up the protective hedge around his people and let the enemy come in because the enemy is always there and the enemy always wants to defeat us and the enemy is always ready for battle. All God has to do let up the hedge, and here comes the enemy. And so Israel now, they're no longer protected by the Lord. They're no longer, they no longer have the enemy kept at bay. They no longer have the enemy restrained. The restraint is left up, uh, let up. The walls are lifted up. The protection, the hedge is gone or at least opened up. And what happens? Then the enemy comes in like a flood. And I want you to see, fifthly, that the consequences that are here, they are fully expressed. I mean, there might have been a few people in Israel that might have thought, yeah, you know, things could get bad. And it's as if God is saying, you play with me and you trifle with me and with my word and you think they might be bad, let me show you just how bad they can be. Now, of course, we're going to find out next time we look at this passage that it was temporary because when God does this and when God allows this to happen, it's not just because he was doing it on a whim or doing it for revenge. Angry towards sin, yes, but at the same time, lovingly wanting his children to learn that it's better to trust God. You're safe when you are trusting God. God protects his people. But see, these people were acting like a lot of us act. God, leave me alone. God, I don't care. God, I don't want to obey you. And God says, have your wish. And then the benefits and the protections that come from walking with him and from loving him and knowing him are taken away as well. And all of a sudden, they don't seem to like it. It says that their young men are drawn into war. And uh, the word fire there is making a reference to war. And they are killed off. What does that do? Well, they're fiancés and their girlfriends are back at home waiting for them to come, you know, Johnny come marching home. And uh, what happens? Johnny doesn't come marching home, does he? He's been killed in battle. So there are no weddings or anything. Even the priests are killed. And uh, the Bible says that there's not even any lament for them. It's as if there is just something so somber and so heavy and so frightening. You know, uh, I read an article not too long ago about this COVID-19 virus and the way it's hit America. And this man said, have you noticed that all of America's idols have been hit? I mean, there's no sports. People are losing jobs. The stock market has gone way down and people's health being compromised. Uh, a lot of those things that we worship and that we give ourselves to, 
they're being challenged now. Maybe it's God telling us that we can live without a lot of things, but it's not the things we really think are important that are actually important. It's God and walking with God and honoring Him. And that's what God was teaching Israel. And that's what Asaph's point is in teaching all of this, this, this part that seems so um, ugly and dark and fierce and bloody and all of that is to teach us that here is a God who is willing to protect us, who is willing to love us, who is willing to bless us, who is willing to be merciful to us. And so what do we do with that? And even as Christians, we need to understand something. The cross where Jesus is dying and bearing the wrath of God is not to make us look at that and say, oh good, my sin's paid for, I can live any way that I want. It's to cause us to look and say, sin must be much worse than I think it is for God the Father to treat His Son in that manner. It's cause for us to say, a holy, righteous God who is angry at sin and angry at sinners, if He is willing to do that to His Son in order to forgive me, He must love me an awful lot, and indeed He does. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there's the good news. The Bible says that all of us are sinners and because of that we face death. And death is not just a physical thing. There is a spiritual death that the Bible speaks of in the book of Revelation. It's called the second death and it's an eternity in the lake of fire. But God in His love and mercy sent His Son and poured His anger toward our sin on His own Son and Jesus absorbed it fully. It's called propitiation. And conquered death, hell, and the grave, rose from the dead and is now King of kings and Lord of lords. So what are we going to do and how are we going to look at that? Are we going to be the ones that are going to say, good, Jesus died for me, so now no big deal? Or will we look at it the other way and say, Jesus died for me. What a big deal it must be to God. And how great must the Father's love be for me. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And there are still consequences to sin. Now, I'll just close by saying for you and me on this side of the cross, here's the good news. The anger of God that we read about in here is still there and it is still towards sin, but it's been put on Jesus. You and I will never face the wrath and the anger of God toward our sin. Oh, good. Then we can do anything we want, right? No, that's not what we're taught in the Word of God, is it? Because now it goes from God dealing with us in a punishment way that was all put on Christ. Now He deals with us as his children. And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord does something with his children with the ones that he loves. And it says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? See, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are now his children. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. See, that's what Israel did, and that's what we do, isn't it? We take it lightly. We don't take it seriously. 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And that is so hard for us to get into our minds. The discipline of God is not because he is angry with you and kicking you around and he's going to show you. It is the action of a loving father who trains his child to act properly. Now, you and I, if we're in Walmart and we see an out-of-control kid, we might say, that kid better be glad I'm not his daddy. And uh, why can't they get him under control? Well, listen, God is doing something in your life. He is growing you up. He is teaching you and he is training you. And the discipline of God is to make you better. The discipline of God is to assure you of his love and his attention. You see, what we find out is that children that are never disciplined, they don't grow up feeling loved by their parents. They grow up feeling like they didn't matter. I wasn't even important enough for mom and dad to discipline me or to train me. Now, they may not say that verbally, but emotionally, that's kind of how they feel. And what the writer of Hebrews is reminding us is, your heavenly Father loves you so much. He knows where you are, everything you are doing, good, bad, right, or wrong, And when you do what is wrong as a loving father who wants you to be better than that, he's the one who disciplines you and he does it for your good. He does it out of favor. He does it because he cares. Well, why doesn't he do that for all the people in the world? Look at what all they're doing. And I'll just close by saying this. I don't spank other people's children. I don't go into other people's houses in the neighborhood and say, you're doing a terrible job being a parent, let me take over. I took care of my children. God isn't spanking the devil's children because they're the devil's children. But he does discipline his. And the fact that he does tells us that he cares, that sin is serious, that the sacrifice of Christ is real, that the gospel is glorious, and that God's love and attention toward us is an everlasting one. And he loves us with an everlasting love. So thank you for joining us in here. And we're in the children's church area. And that fits, doesn't it? Because we've got to pray for our children. We've got to love and discipline our children. But please teach them the whole story about God. Let them know the God of the Bible, so they don't trust in a God of their own imagination, but they trust in God as he has revealed himself. And by the way, this is a great time to say thank you to every one of you who work in our children's ministry, and we'll look forward to having those up and going again, hopefully soon, and uh, pray that as we do, we'll reach a lot of children for the glory of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thank you, church, for supporting that. May the Lord bless you. I'd like to close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we think about you, forgive us for the times when we only emphasize certain characteristics, certain things that are likable and pleasant and seem to fit what we want. Forgive us when we don't see you as you have revealed yourself in Holy Scripture. And forgive us when we're not teaching our children the whole picture. And help us to do that in the right way, in an appropriate way, in a way that they will understand. And help us all as your children to live for your glory, to respond to your discipline, and to understand that you always do it out of love. Thank you for loving us so much. And we pray this 
asking your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and may the Lord bless you.